Hello, welcome back to Water Boat Women. Today we'll be exploring the seedy side of the seaside towns of Kent in All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook. This is one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. I bought it on a whim with a Christmas book voucher I'd been given as a present. I've been in the bookstore for hours, carefully thinking about what to spend it on. I recognised the title. I'd seen it on blogs, in the Margate bookshop, and it had somehow slid its way into my mind through conversations I'd overheard while sitting in a coffee shop in Margate. I'll admit, before I read the book, I looked at the pastel pink and blue cover and the Play-Doh white font and thought Devils was meant in a teasing, trivial sense. After a few pages, I realised that Seabrook was deadly serious. He was talking about the real thing. Everyone I've spoken to about this book has marvelled over it. Its darkness and eerie conjuring of the ghosts that inhabit the string of towns dotted along the coast here make for an intense and sobering read. I'm going to start by reading the prelude, and then a chapter called In Town Tonight, which zooms in on a small and exclusive residential estate called North Foreland in Broadstairs, and a couple of its most famous residents. All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook At some stage in the early 18th century it changed its character. An insignificant fishing village on the Kent coast became England's first commercial bathing resort, catering annually for the thousands who came to test for themselves the newly alleged curative and health-giving properties of its seawater. It developed accordingly, and grew so popular that by the end of the century it had changed its character again, shedding its genteel image and becoming the first resort to cater for the working classes. Vast numbers of cockneys descended on the town by cheap direct sale from London. They came to bathe, to drink, to whoop it up. The slide had begun. William Cooper observed that Margate though full of company, was generally filled with such company as people who were nice in their choice of their company were rather fearful of keeping company with. There are hunched, sedated souls lingering in cafes and souped-up milk bars. There are groups of squabbling Albanians outside. There are the young men of the front. This front all bare arms, body art and fast-working, furious faces. Faces that ought to be spouting water from the walls of Gothic buildings. But they're here, and they speak, spraying spittle. I drift past the entrance to Dreamland. Margate's main attraction opened its doors in 1920, importing the name from an amusement park on Coney Island and the main ride the caterpillar from Germany. While you queued for the big thrill, you could look up at your kids looking down at you through a grill set in the huge horned head of the snail man, a tall wooden structure with stairs. The park was also a place to get your pocket picked, and probably still is. There's no money in Margate. Eye contact has replaced it as the root of all evil, and yes, this town's as ripe as ever for a low-budget remake of Brighton Rock, 
the joyless amusement barcades, the facial scars. So what did I expect to find? Well, I never expected to find what I came for, but here it is, still standing, overlooking the sands. I move around inside, stamping on the bare boards, appraising the wood. It's the original Victorian timber, built for eternity. The benches are coated a ketchup red, beginning to flake, and in the window frames, plastic replaces leaded glass. But I don't doubt for a moment that I've found it. I look for a plaque. There isn't one. Yet Margate plays a deeper game. When I grow tired of examining this sea shelter, I glance across at the building next to it and read, Toilets. It takes a few moments for the spent penny to drop. I rub my eyes and look again. T.S. Eliot, lest we forget. The Wasteland appeared in October 1922, in the first number of the Criterion, a literary quarterly founded and edited by T.S. Eliot. Subscribers must have felt a shock of recognition at the strange new patterns on the page. They knew what this poem was talking about, even if they couldn't fathom what it said. Consider its archduke, wrote Paul Fussell. Its rats and canals and dead men. Its focus on fear. Its dusty trees. Its conversation about demobilisation. Its spiritualist practitioners. Consider its jump cuts, flashbacks, German, gibbering. Its birdsong out there in the ether. Here was a poem unmistakably seeded and shaped by the events of World War I. A poem which appeared to have been blown to bits and put together again at high speed. But it wasn't put together quite right. Logic, searched for, was missing. Some quotations were intact, but others had sustained injuries or were only dimly recognisable owing to disfigurement. The wasteland wasn't a joke. It was a stitch-up. The world made new with a needle and thread. Yet the wasteland isn't a war poem in the accepted sense of the words. For had its author seen service in the trenches, it would be a radically different poem, or most likely no poem at all. Eliot's war record amounted to a foiled attempt to join the United States Naval Intelligence Service in the spring of 1918, a year after America had entered. The civilian's point of view produced incalculable gains by treating the war as a background rather than a theme, highlighting what was lost by describing what was left. By the end of the war, the death count had run into millions and there was hardly a family in Britain which hadn't suffered a bereavement. The Wasteland, like no poem before or since, was possessed by the posthumous feeling of what it's like to survive a war. All those voices and all in your own head. Mediums such as Eliot's Madame Sosostris haunted family drawing rooms, picking up what money they could while attempting to avoid prosecution under the Vagrancy Act. One must be so careful these days. The clairvoyant, it seemed, was indeed the wisest woman in Europe. 
Who else had any answers? And then again, the very form of this new poem appeared to mimic the planchette's pencil and its poignant cause. Controversial, carrying all behind it, the Wasteland established Eliot as a major poet and somewhat overshadowed his later career, so that he grew to resent the poem and its success. At the time, he seems hardly to have known what he was doing. The poem's completion, long delayed, blocked in his mind, was the result of a two-month spasm of activity towards the end of 1921 and was completed in a sanatorium in Lausanne, Switzerland, in December. But before Lausanne, crucially, came Margate. Whatever happened to remove the block happened here. In Town Tonight North Foreland Estate Strictly no parking on this estate This is the first message I receive From a notice the size of an optician's board The second is from the surveillance camera directly overhead It's positioned to record arrivals and equipped with a wiper in case of rain the road forks here. I take a long look at the cabbage field that leads down to the promenade before I start off on the road to my right. The roads are maintained by the residents, another sign tells me. There are no pavements, only grass verges and yellow gravel in tarmac and there is, of course, no parking. It's hard to rationalise what I'm seeing today on my afternoon stroll. Flint walling, personalised number plates, a QPR sticker in a bedroom window, spin drift, windy bay, lindisfarne, houses which clamber on top of one another like mad-eyed toads in a jar. It's not what I expected at all. I look around for something that'll speak to me of the past, Something that isn't stone cladding or diddy men on lily pads or... The lighthouse. There in the distance, the fat white tower of the lighthouse looms. Behind me, a throat clears. Silence. Then a commentary begins. Softly at first, growing louder with confidence. See it up there? The oldest working lighthouse in the country. Went automatic in 98. Closed to the public now. The last in England. But I'll tell you. And I can feel this voice drawing closer, beginning to tickle my neck. It was North Foreland Radio that captured Crippen and his mistress out there on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic. And it was this very lighthouse that gave Wilkie Collins his book title. White. The colour, get me? Silence again. So I point and say that the lighthouse, doesn't it look like a puffed-up chess piece? And when I turn, my guide is smiling. He's small, unstooped, 80 if he's a day, gardening shears on the hedge behind him. I can see from his smile that similes are thin on the ground around here. There's something else in his smile. He's eyeing me, 
ingratiating himself. After all, I could be his new neighbour. I'm scruffy enough to be rich enough to buy in. It's a melancholy thought to part on, and so I let the old man know, over my shoulder, that I'm just here on a visit. He relaxes immediately, and gestures seaward with his shears. Have I seen... I cut him off with the name I guess is on his lips, and prepare myself for another commentary. But his face darkens, and he doesn't speak. I raise a hand and turn to walk downhill, left at the bottom of Anne's road. And there it is, overlooking the cliffs. Naldera. Partially rebuilt following a fire in 1993, the 20-room villa has long been converted into flats. One, two, three, four, five. Curiously, there are only four satellite dishes, three jutting from the main building, and the fourth secured to a few steps that lead down into long grass. Gone are the protective hedgegroves and the air of seclusion. A low front wall has partly collapsed and a Ford Granada and trailer sit at the end of a driveway which barely begins. If I were to walk half a dozen paces from the road, I could press my nose to the conservatory window where a group of outsized paper poppies are in bloom. I could examine the giant yucca plant and positively identify what looks like a corn dolly dangling from a wall bracket. The offer's there, no question. But not today. I take a step backward and gaze up at the lichen on the roof. Naldera was built in the early years of the 20th century as a holiday home for George Nathaniel Curzon, first Marquess Curzon of Kedleston in Derbyshire, and the last Viceroy of India under Queen Victoria. As long as we rule India, we are the greatest power in the world, he declared in 1901, the year of her death. If we lose it, we shall drop straight away to a third-rate power, Naldera takes its name from a tented encampment outside Simla, where Curzon liked to relax with his wife and family. At the end of 1906, the couple returned to England, where Mary Curzon died the following year after a long, obscure illness. Curzon spent the next six years procuring materials for a memorial chapel near his family home at Kettleston. In its centre, he placed a white marble tomb of his own design, where his body would eventually join hers. He never fully adjusted to the loss, or to the legacy of his three daughters and no son and heir. His second wife, Grace, suffered a succession of miscarriages. Chief among Curzon's various physical afflictions was phlebitis, for which sea air was no doubt recommended. He liked Kent, and when he was down here he travelled throughout the country searching unsuccessfully for ghosts. Maybe he tried too hard. Now a pallid face appears at the conservatory window, followed by a tapping finger. Time to move on. Walking back the way I came along Cliff Promenade, I recall the man at the top of the hill. The look he gave me when I mentioned Naldera. The involuntary twitch of his shears. He's old enough to remember. I must return to him. Or is that him now, coming down Anne's road towards me? If it is, he's doing well for his age, moving faster than I could ever imagine in this heat. 
The dark speck grows bigger and bigger until I catch a flash of white at the throat. It's not the old-timer, after all. It's a middle-aged vicar, and he's in a hurry. Striding past me in his dark suit, head bowed, his Bible tucked underneath his arm. Odd. He's just passed within six feet of me. I don't think he even realised I'm here. Of course, we all know that these people like to walk around in a world of their own. Odd, though. And besides, where's the nearest church around here? I've half a mind to follow and find out. So I wander back down the hill. Slow. Low-key. But without really meaning to, I close in on him, because at the bottom of Anne's road, the vicar stops. He lifts his arm a fraction. The book drops under his palm. What's he waiting for? Eventually he starts off in the direction of Naldera, but after a few yards he stops again, and this time when he turns, he turns around. To see me, I suppose, and to let me see him. See that it is him. Well, it's him, all right. So what's with the fancy dress? The eyes are the only points of reality here. Although, no, I don't remember them being quite so yellow as these. It was a lifetime ago, but the years fall away like scales off a snake and I'm back there, tearing across her front lawn, taking the shortcut and squashing baby crocuses to get to the door. Even when I reached it, I couldn't keep still. I had a hand on the knocker before the bell had finished chiming in the hall. I was just about ready to jump through the glass when a man's face popped out of the side door like a cuckoo out of a clock and asked me, me, stood there with the ring in my pocket, asked me if I was trade. It's over. 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 As soon as the strength returns to my legs, I start running, rushing across the headland, through the long grass and straight over the clifftop. Almost. I manage to dig my heels in a few feet short of the edge. On my right, a set of railings, half buried in privet, is the last thing clutchable. Through a mist of sweat, I read, Private property, as from 1st of March 1999. Public access to those steps is prohibited. North Foreland Estate Limited. Who the hell cares? Not me. I'm going down, and as I go down, I'll count. One. This appears to be the shaft cut into a chalk cliff face. I glimpse an electricity substation through the railings on my right. Undergrowth creeps through, sufficient to engulf a small child. On my left, a handrail and a sheltered drop. Ten feet, maybe. Suicide mesh and Summerfield's bags. Some form of succulent is growing down there. Twenty-five. Some of these steps are stone. Others are wooden, with holes. I descend with care, past the graffiti, the lovers' names. Thirty-eight. The second section of the staircase indicates a zigzag pattern. Daylight has so far managed to filter down, but the foot tunnel ahead of me is pitch black. I come out onto a sliver of beach. 115, including five in various stages of erosion. The original oak steps, 
long since replaced, numbered 78. Who was the friend who allegedly advised John Buchan to halve that number for the title of his novel? Mathematician David Wells wrote that 39 appears to be the first uninteresting number, which of course makes it an especially interesting number, because it is the smallest number to have the property of being uninteresting. Numerologists believe that the number three is a trinity, a completion, absorbing one plus two. It resolves the conflict of duality and provides the impetus to act, create. Nine is three times as powerful, the number of karma, destiny. And yet, the suspenseful incompleteness of three and nine together is immediately apparent. It's a number that anticipates the next number. It's a fictional number as well. Give 39 as your age and see who believes you. In summer 1914, about two days before war was declared, according to his wife Susan, the Buchan family went on holiday to Broadstairs. Sea air had been prescribed for six-year-old Alice, recovering from a mastoid operation, but her father's health soon proved to be the central concern. Buchan divided his time between England, where he worked as a London barrister, and Scotland, where he acted as chief literary adviser to the Edinburgh publisher Thomas Nelson and represented Selkirk and Peebles as the unionist candidate. Overwork and stress had brought on a duodenal ulcer, as yet undiagnosed, which was to blight the rest of his life. He was not quite yet 39. He regarded writing as a form of relaxation and had already published hundreds of magazine articles and 36 books. He arrived slightly later than the others at St Ronan's guest house in Stone Road and took to his bed almost immediately, where he began work on the 39 steps. The family of his wife's cousins were staying nearby. They had been lent a villa, St Cuby, on the North Foreland, opposite steps leading down to a private beach. St Cuby has come to be identified with Trafalgar Lodge, a villa introduced in the final chapter of the novel and located on the rough, the big chalk headland, outside Bradgate. It's a very high-toned sort of place, and the residents there like to keep by themselves. St Cuby stands on the juncture between Cliff Promenade and Anne's Road, another flat conversion. The bungalow behind calls itself the 39 Steps, another vulgarism. St Cuby is just a two-minute walk from Naldera. This fact breeds questions in my mind, questions I can't answer right now. So I pad about on this isolated strip of beach and, staring out across the channel, think of something else. Money. Naldera was the least magnificent of several houses maintained by the Marquess. He probably stayed here a couple of weeks in a year, if that but its upkeep, the grounds, the servants, must have cost a small fortune, and Lord Curzon was broke. So it's just as well that he married money, albeit American money. His first wife, Mary, was the daughter of Levi Leiter, a Chicago businessman who had made millions out of real estate. 
The generosity of his marriage settlement astonished his son-in-law. Levi Leiter had settled $1 million on any children that might result from Curzon's marriage to Mary in 1895. She had three daughters, whose father was to live in princely fashion off the income from the trust while they occupied themselves with growing up. And then, not long after the end of the war, the family battles began. Curzon had already quarrelled bitterly with Irene, his eldest, who at the age of 23 had demanded her entire share of the settlement when Cynthia announced her intention to marry and another payout loomed. But perhaps things were not so bad as they seemed. In the event, Cynthia claimed the money from her mother's will, but agreed to leave untouched her portion of the marriage settlement. So his income looked safe, and moreover, his future son-in-law, the Conservative MP for Harrow and heir to Baronetsy, seemed like a man with prospects. Curzon put out feelers, heard good reports. In March 1920, he wrote to Grace that he had inspected Cynthia's fiancé for himself. Very young. Tall, slim, dark. Rather a big nose. Little black moustache, rather a Jewish appearance. And with a light heart, he broke the news. It turns out he is quite independent has practically severed himself from his father, who is a spendthrift and a ne'er-do-well. He did not even know that Sim was an heiress. The relieved father gave his blessing, and on the 11th of May 1920, Cynthia Curzon married Sir Oswald Mosley in the Chapel Royal St James's. Oswald and Cynthia. Tom and Simmy to people who knew them, and everybody knows them now. Their love story's famous. Their son, Nicholas, recorded, Tom Mosley remembered that one of the first times he saw Simmy was on Armistice Night, when she was at the Ritz Hotel, draped in a Union Jack and singing patriotic songs. Warriors together, that's what they were. And she loved him, her hero. And she always forgave him, her coming man. For the shafts of wit in the other wives' bedrooms, where every English rose deserves a stalk. And for one or two other things, for he told her in his letters that he loved her too. And when she died suddenly, of peritonitis in 1933, shortly after their 13th wedding anniversary, he loved her best of all, for giving him gravity and for making space. A tomb of pink marble was constructed and placed in a sunken garden in the grounds of their Buckinghamshire home, but Tom contemplated an even grander memorial. He had, by this time, left conventional politics far behind, and he chose to dedicate his dynamic new movement, the British Union of Fascists, to the memory of his beloved wife. What woman in earth could have asked for more? Her father had rejected her long before her death, a year after the marriage, debts had piled up and Simi announced her intention to cut off his allowance by claiming the rest of her inheritance. The money was duly handed over, but Curzon never spoke to her again. He died in 1925 and left Naldera to his stepdaughter. The house remained empty for the next five years. But that's enough about Curzon. This story, this Naldera story, isn't really about Curzon at all. I keep meaning to tell you, he's not the one. 
sea spray shakes me alert, and I pad back across the sand to the foot of the steps. That's when it hits me. Me and my vicar. Up there, waiting. It's a chance I'll have to take. I reach out for the rail and re-enter the foot tunnel. Creeping through darkness, I hear, can't see, all that water lapping below me. Surf's up. After finishing this book, I was left in that place that only a few pieces of writing have had the ability to take me to. A feeling that I'd been changed. For better or worse, I can never tell. I was interested in finding out more about David Seabrook and his other books. An online search directed me to his skeletal Wikipedia page. Near the bottom of the page it says, Until his death, he lived alone at Westside Apartments in Canterbury. He was discovered dead in his flat by Kent police. There is unconfirmed speculation that Seabrook was murdered. However, this has never really been officially established. He was 49. The true crime writer, investigator, antagonistic people prodder, lifter of veils, found dead in his flat in Canterbury under suspicious circumstances. Seabrook has transcended... He himself has become one of the ghosts that haunt the spaces between the lines of his writing. I want to thank Granta Publishers for allowing me to read some of this book to you. You can buy a copy direct from Granta. I put a link on my website at www.waterboatwoman.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time. Until then, keep treading water. <laughs>